Romans chapter 7 and verse number 14. I repeat, I hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. Brother John Conrad be here and sharing some video about the projects they've been working on and intend to work on. I hope you'll come along and be with us for, I believe, an exciting and informative service for us. Again, it's good to have all of you here this morning. I appreciate very much your presence and glad that you were able to come. And for our guests this morning, thank you for being with us. Thank you for coming to New Life Baptist Church. In Romans chapter 7, verse number 14, Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. When I read this passage of Scripture, this text that I've just read to you from Romans chapter 7, verse 14 through 25, an interesting thing, it was obviously written by the pen of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when I read it, I think of, uh, of all things, I think of the Titanic. The Titanic. I think of that for several reasons. Probably because of so much of what I've read about that. I have found it always an interesting subject and I have been fascinated by it. I have a few clippings about the Titanic. Let me read them. First off, quote, God himself could not sink this ship. That was the boast of the hand aboard the RMS Titanic in 1912. The men who built the ship, the civilized world, and the credulous public all believed and boasted that this was an unsinkable ship. But God was not mocked. It is said when the captain gave orders to abandon the ship, many passengers simply could not believe their ears that the Titanic could even possibly sink, and many, it is recorded, refused to get into passenger boats. It has also been reported the crew was almost criminally, almost criminally complacent. So 1,502 men, women, and children plunged into the depths. Another article says, An insurance company pictured the Titanic sailing straight for the iceberg, which sank that great ship and used it as an advertisement for the insurance company. They wrote in the article or in the advertisement, quote, They called her the Millionaire Special. Four city blocks long, 11 stories high, powered by triple screw, protected by the latest, most ingenious safety devices, luxurious, beautiful beyond words. She caught the fancy of the entire world. Her name was the Titanic. On April the 10th, 1912, she slipped out of Southampton on her maiden voyage to New York. 
Less than five days later, she went down in 12,000 feet of icy water, 3,000 feet of her hull ripped open by a massive iceberg. Another article. This one says, Five iceberg warnings were telegraphed to the ill-fated Titanic. When the sixth message came, quote, look out for the icebergs, the Titanic's operator wired back, shut up, I'm busy here. Exactly 35 minutes later, the great ship, whose captain had said God himself couldn't sink the ship, was sinking, and all 513 passengers and crew were drowned. And one final word. This clipping was one which I had not heard nor read. Uh, I said not read recently. Years ago I'd heard it but wasn't sure of it. Probably the only ship that was on fire every hour of its active life was the Titanic. The British liner that, that struck an iceberg and sank on its maiden voyage to New York in 1912. Fire broke out in a bunker as the Titanic was leaving Southampton Dock at noon on April the 10th. What's interesting, it was still burning four days and 14 hours later when this huge 46,000-ton vessel went down at 2.20 a.m. on April the 15th. Why in the world, when you read Romans chapter 7 and verse, verses 14 through 25, would you think of the Titanic? Let me give you some reasons. First off, I think of the Titanic when I read the passage because here... Paul tells us how he was locked into a titanic struggle with sin. A big struggle with sin. There are people who won't even read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. For, they give several reasons. One of them, they just simply say it's too confusing. This guy was absolutely crazy about this matter of sin. They won't read it. There are some churches that will read, not read the text in a worship service. Refuse to read Romans 7 in a worship service. Is a titanic struggle between Paul and sin. Like the sin nature that stays within the person from cradle to the grave, the titanic had this fire in its hole that did not go out until it went down in the icy grave. Thirdly, people on the titanic struggle to stay alive. Some of those stories are absolutely heart-wrenching. It was a life or death struggle for those folks. And so it is with every believer in this room as they struggle with sin. No matter how confident the public was that the Titanic could not sink, she did. And no matter how spiritually strong you may think you are, you can still sink under sin. Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7 will prove that. And I say sink, meaning that it gets an upper hand. It is the Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet in this text of Scripture there is no wording in all the Bible that so describes a struggle like this man had, and you and I will have on planet Earth. With all that understood about why I think of the Titanic, let me take you to the text and let's dig in. First off, notice if you would, and please keep before you from the text of Scripture in Romans chapter 7, several things that we've laid as groundwork, and I hope that you've covered, and we have covered them, but I hope you've conquered them, that is, I hope you understand them. First one is in verse number 7. In verse number 7, it made the statement, and you need to keep this ever before you. In verse number 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. So the first thing the law, the Word of God does, is it reveals sin. 
The second thing, look at verse number 8 and 9. It revives sin. Verse number 8 says, But sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is the fact that in your heart, in your life, there's the sins that lie dormant. And those sins lying dormant there are not stirred up until someone comes across them with the law of God and says, here's what God says concerning those sins. And then it is at that point, those sins, as it were, begin to rise up, and I believe still out of rebellion of heart. Just like a child when it's told not to do something. A man stood here in the auditorium yesterday telling about his uh, daughter and his rebukes of her for doing a certain thing. And uh, grant you, this was a small child, but he said the little girl, when he had set her down and explained to her about not touching a certain item in the home, that this little girl simply would look at him and make a step and take another step. He said there were some things that were quite obvious. She knew what the law was, but in her heart of hearts, there was a rebellion against that out of desire for what was before. And then may I say that's exactly the way it is with people, with human beings of our age and our adult age. So verse number 8 and 9 says that when the law comes on the scene, it actually revives sin. It causes us to see and look deeper and to see what's there that has not been addressed. Then verse number 10 and 11 shows something that we often overlook, and that is the true effect of sin. Not, not just what sin sells itself to be, but what it really is. Verse 10 says, "...and the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death." For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. He's saying that what also the law shows us is it shows us the true effect of sin, what sin's true effect is, not what sin tells you it can do. Often around here we refer to sin as the counterfeit killer. It sells you on one idea, and then it stabs you with another. And that's exactly what the law does. It tells you what this sin really is, and reveals to you, shows you, its intent is death, not life. Also, in verse number 12 and 13, it shows you the sinfulness of sin. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The law of God, intent, has its purpose. It will show you the sinfulness of sin. And so the more that you take in of God's Word, the more you sit under the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, the reading of God's Word, the more sinful sin will become to you. Contrary-wise, the less of God's Word you take in, the less sinful sin will be. And so it becomes an easy thing. People who get away from God's Word, get away from church, very quickly go down the tube. Reason is simple. Because they do not have God's Word, His law, that reminds them of the sinfulness of sin and reminds them of the true effect of what sin will have upon them. And when they lose the perspective of those two things, the downward spiral is encouraged and even picks up speed. Something in here, with all the good things then said about the law in this text of Scripture, it begs the question, how come Paul speaks so negatively about it in all the text? He's not speaking about the law. That's the first thing you understand. And the second thing is he understood about sin. Sometimes we who know the Lord think that when we got saved, the sin problem in a Christian's life was just absolutely taken care of. I mean, the curtains were pulled on it. No more problem with sin. That's a misnomer. And this text of Scripture proves it beyond question. 
Let me call your attention to verse number 14, which begins the study of the text today. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I also know, though the text doesn't say I also know, it's implied, I also know that I am carnal, sold under sin. So here's the key, if you please, to the whole passage of Scripture. This will help you understand everything that is to come. It's tied up in the phrase, I am carnal, the law is spiritual. When you bring these two against each other before we absolutely you know, realize it, when you bring God's Word in against a fleshly carnal person, you'll find out in a minute there's going to be a, a clash. It's what happens here in Indiana when a cold front comes through and we've had some hot weather and there's a clash between the systems. We have thunderstorms and sometimes they spawn tornadoes. And I say to you, damage is done. Consequently, that's the same kind of clashing in the sense of, of there being two different opposing views that come together. And when they do, something's got to give. And what you read about here in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 is the story of the thunderstorms that are occurring because of the clashing of the law of God and a carnal person. So when you understand that, then this whole thing makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, obviously, if we go back to the very most basic question that has to be answered in chapter 7, it is, who in the world is this person that Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 7? Is it a Christian or is it a non-Christian? Is this a believer or a lost person that is under all this information? I say to you without going into a lot of detail, let me uh, state and then show you why that I think this is the Apostle Paul himself and two, why that I believe the Apostle Paul is a mature believer and a spiritual giant, if you please, and what he experienced here, anybody and everybody in this room could experience the exact same thing if you move in spiritual progress toward maturity. I call your attention, first of all, to prove the point in like in verse number uh, 1, where it says in the very beginning of the, of the chapter, excuse me, not verse 1, chapter number 7, verse number 14, where he says, I am carnal. I call your attention to that verse where we begin this text because it, it literally sets the pace for what's to follow because this is written in the first person present tense. And Paul has changed from what he's been writing and what tense he's written in if you check your Greek words, you'll find that, they, that there's a change in the tense. And the changes in that tense is saying this. Now, whatever I was talking about before, what I'm talking about right now is a present relationship, a present circumstance, and I'm dealing with it in my life. He uses this, um, this personal pronoun some 40 times, in fact, more than 40 times in this whole chapter. But the fact is that he's, what he's talking about here and now becomes really personal. And you can see it by the references he makes to himself. The second thing that's very obvious about it, not only is it the Apostle Paul, but this person is a saved person. Obviously, it was Paul, it was saved. But if you didn't know who Paul was, you never read anything else about him, even as you read this text, if you understood that it was a man who was saved by virtue of the following. For instance, look at verse 15. In verse number 15, it's obvious this man is saved because he wants to do right. In verse 15, it says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, I do. This man is wrestling with wanting to do right, but somehow having trouble doing wrong. And so the, whoever this guy is, this guy is not lost because lost people have no such desire. If a person in this auditorium this morning is lost, let me tell you something. Enjoy your sin. Have at it. This is the only heaven you're going to get. And the second to understand about it is that, that the reality is that for you, you will not embrace nor take what God has said about sin, so you might as well enjoy it, because this is the best you're going to get. But for a believer in this room, couldn't do that. 
It would be impossible to do that. And what's inside of every believer's heart, though it may be a small flicker of a flame of desire, he always, he desires to do that which is right. And that's put there not because of something he worked up, but something that was put in. And that's the Holy Spirit of God that indwells every believer who influences his salvation through divine desires. Human desires will not direct you to that. Your human desires are those things that draw you away from the Lord. Divine desires are those that are imparted by reading the Scriptures, memorizing God's Word, being under the preaching, teaching of God's Word. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote this text of Scripture, shows himself to be a spiritual-minded person because he desires to do right. It also shows and is characteristic in verse number 18. Look at verse 18. For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. That's a humble attitude towards sin. Lost people don't say that. Lost people say, hey, man, I'm having a great time, man. I, I may be going to hell in a matchbox, but I'm having a great time. Don't bother me. Say people say, hey, look, I know that in me dwells absolutely nothing, and I know exactly what, what I need to do, and I'm, I'm, I, I confess that this sin is, is lording over me, and I need to address it. That's what a Christian would say. Paul is humble about this, but something else, and he gives it away in verse 25. Here this man, this person who's writing this, says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lost people don't do that. Lost people don't do that. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. Lost people don't serve the law of God with their mind. The imprint is that you're trying to take what God says and to abide by it. Lost people don't do that. Lost people, in fact, do not come to church. You know why lost people don't come to church? It's not because I'm a bad person. I am a wonderful person when you get to know me. That's not why they don't come to New Life Baptist Church. You know why they don't come to New Life Baptist Church? Because they don't want to hear what God's got to say about what they do. And you wouldn't either. You wouldn't want to run around with somebody who all the time is telling you what's wrong in your life. And yet every time we open the scripture, we'd be hard-pressed not to read something that would condemn their lifestyle. And so when lost people come into a church like theirs, they ought not feel comfortable. If a lost person came to New Life Baptist Church and felt comfortable, I'd resign on Monday. It would, be a, it would be an insult to say that lost people could come under the influence of Bible preaching and feel comfortable. That'd be, a, that'd be an insult to the ministry, not a compliment to it. Because the scriptures are very, very clear. The law of God reveals sin. And when it's revealed, it also tells and passes judgment upon it. Paul the Apostle addresses that in this context. What Paul had written and what Ryan read some of in the Sunday school hour gives the characteristic of a lost person back over in chapter 1. Let me read some of which he didn't. In chapter 1 of uh, the book of Romans, beginning and let me read in verse 18. Brian began in verse nine, uh, 29. Let me read in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. Romans 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth uh, in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, but being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, they are, they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's a characteristic of lost people. 
And that's not what is characteristic of what is written in Romans chapter 7. Some, by the way, who object to this passage of Scripture and say, Well, uh, Pastor Henry, I don't believe that Romans chapter 7 uh, is uh, telling us that uh, a believer here is, this is this believer is the Apostle Paul. But don't believe that because we don't believe that a Christian has this much trouble with sin. Uh, I have a commentary in my office that says basically that this is not a Christian, this is a lost person, and, and the reason is because Christians don't have this kind of trouble with sin. Let me tell you something, and let me set the record straight. There are three kind of people from which sin has no problem. These three people have no problem with sin. Number one is a physically dead person, has no trouble with sin. Two is a spiritually dead person, a lost person, a pagan, has no trouble with sin. He just, that's everything he does. The plowing of the wicked is sin. Everything he does is sin. His every breath he takes is sin. So he has no trouble with sin. And thirdly, a lying believer. A lying believer. Spiritually dead, physically dead, and a lying believer. Those are the only people who have no trouble with sin. Everybody else has trouble with sin, and it is proven beyond question because of Romans chapter 7 and what has been said here. By the way, let me make a correction on what I said a few weeks ago from this pulpit in a message on Sunday morning. A few weeks ago, I said to you uh, in passing, and I was only getting you ready for what was to come, I said something to the effect, or I suggested that Paul was not living up to what he had preached. Maybe some of you remember that. If you don't remember it, I never said it. But what was said? I said something to the effect that I didn't believe Paul was living up to the truth that he had preached. I was over in the first 14 or first 12 or 13 verses studying at that time, and I had gone through the last part and read it two or three times, and I had made an off-cuff kind of interpretation. Honestly, not enough to make a declared statement, and I should have kept my mouth shut on that point. As I read further, studied harder, I came to a conclusion that was incorrect. I don't believe that at all about this text of Scripture. I believe something quite to the contrary. I believe, in fact, that here you see in the text that the Apostle Paul is at his very best spiritually. And I would say to you that practicing what he had taught, he not only did, but he fulfilled what he had taught to the hill. And might I tell you that that's why the conflict over sin is so great. And that's what I believe about Romans chapter 7. You see, I am convinced that only a believer at the top of their spiritual maturity, that is, they're in the process of growing maturing spiritually would they either go through or be sensitive about such a titanic struggle as sin in their life another way to put it is to say paul's not perfect that's for sure no one is but he was a spiritual giant and what you see happening in romans chapter 7 is a man who was dealing with sin in his life because he was spiritually minded you see, there are people in this auditorium who aren't where Paul is, and I'm one of them. And the fact of the matter is, we may not deal with sin. We may not be bothered by sin the way Paul was. But the reason is, it's because we have not grown spiritually enough to realize the things that Paul had taught. One is that sin is exceeding sinful, and two, the true effect of sin is death. It'll kill you. See, if we haven't come to understand that, and, and I don't mean kill you necessarily graveyard dead, however, ultimately that's what it would do, but it'll kill everything about you that's, that's what we call real living, real life living. The abundant life of the Christian life can be killed off by virtue of allowing sin to come in. 
He'll kill it off. He'll kill off your zeal to pray. He'll kill off your zeal to be in church. He'll kill off your zeal to be faithful to the Lord. He'll kill off your zeal to be kind, gracious, and friendly. He'll kill off your production of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. He'll kill everything about you. And he'll kill it in a heartbeat. And the fact of the matter is, what Paul was saying and facing here in this context is that the Apostle Paul was a mature person. And the more maturing you do in Christ, the more aware you are of those things in your life that are not right and have to be addressed. And there is where the struggle starts. If you sit through the week and you don't have any challenges with sin and you don't have any struggle with sin, you don't have to tell me where you are spiritually. I can tell you, you're not growing. You're not maturing. Your maturity is based on the reality of when these two clashes come together. The law of God and the behavior of the flesh. When these come together, you can believe there's going to be thunder and lightning. And what you read in Romans chapter 7 is the thunder and lightning of a believer in maturing in a position of growth and grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who was dissatisfied with where and what was going on in his life. And it ought to encourage you and not discourage you to know that here this giant of God was challenged and struggling over these sins. So he had some relevance of sin in his life. By the way, the more we believers know God and what he expects of us through his word, I hate to tell you, but the more you'll struggle with this issue of sin. The reason for the conflict is we're no longer in Adam, but we're rather in Christ. And with that comes the Holy Spirit's divine drive, desire to become like Christ. And every time that thing is in any way held back or hurt or derailed, the consequences are there's going to be a struggle there. And I remind you, the old nature is still present with us. It's still alive. And that's what Paul means in the context here of beginning chapter 7, verse number 14. More spiritual growth you progress in, the more sin is stirred up in your life, and the greater the struggle will be. When we are born into God's family, we're a new creature in Christ Jesus. We try, at least, to make an attempt by the Holy Spirit's prompting to live in the character of that new creation. The fact is that the new birth, it is with us living in that character, living up to that level of the new birth, the new creation, that we have what we call victory in Christ. But the fact of the matter is, the more victory we have because of our walking in that character, the more the struggle with sin you're going to have on the side because that's the thing that's going to try to stop you from making the spiritual progress. And that's where it's going to hit you on every single side. And that's when you need to remember two things. One, you need to remember as believers we have a spiritual position. And that is we are found in Christ. But also with that you ought to understand you have a spiritual power. Christ in us. You're in Christ, that's a position. But the power to live the Christian life is Christ in us. That's the hope of glory. And the fact of the matter, when you come to understand that and encouraged by that, there is hope for your struggle as it was with Paul the Apostle. When believers live down to their circumstances and rather than living up to the character, their testimonies are hindered and hurt and testimonies actually shadowed and restricted. Look at verse number 14 again, chapter 7. For we know, that's important to catch that, Because if you'll note in the text, in fact, some uh, commentators will divide this chapter 
into three different presentations. And I think it's a good, good way to, to break it off. First, for instance, you have verse 14, we know. And then when you come down to verse 18, for I know. And then when you come to verse 21, I find. It's literally the same idea. In each case, he has found out by experience. He's found out under inspiration of God these truths. He knows these things to be a fact. And these three presentations he makes are really three conditions, and he addresses them. So some people outline the chapter with verse 14, verse 18, and verse 21. That's a very good way to break the chapter down. The fact is, I didn't take it that way, but that's no reason to say that it doesn't have good substance and reality. So what I'd say to you is what Paul says here. We know, the question is, do you know that the law is spiritual? Do you understand that the law of God is something that's activated by the Holy Spirit? That's for it to have an effect. Let me tell you this, and it pointed out too much easier. You can take the Ten Commandments and stick them on every room of your house and still be the, the most wicked person in the city of Franklin. Because the Ten Commandments themselves are not going to have any great impact on you unless you take them to heart and unless the Spirit of the Lord drives them deep into your life to conform to. That's what the Scripture is taking into account when it uses the phrase that the law is spiritual. It means by the simple fact that it takes a spiritual entity to drive those things to the inner man, to the inner woman, so that we absolutely understand the mind and the heartbeat of God. When you do, that's when the struggle starts because now you know what God wants and now you know what the spirit or, excuse me, the flesh is desiring and the two of these are contrary, the one to the other. And the war begins. So the more you know of God's law, the more you come in touch with it, obviously, the more the struggle. Notice something else. It's important to know here, and you should grab this already, but if you haven't, I hope you will at this point, that we're to understand that Paul is absolutely not saying there's anything wrong with the law. He never has and he never will. The law is spiritual, and he's not saying, well, if the law were something else, it would work better. That's not his point here. His point here is the same point we made before, and that is that there's nothing wrong with the law of God. There's nothing wrong with the Word of God. The problem is with us, the people who receive it, as we say, the raw material with which it has to work. If you look over to Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3, Paul writes this, and we'll get to it in a few weeks. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8, 3 is saying, the weakness of the law is not in itself. The weakness of the law is in the people who try to apply it. It's because of the weakness of our flesh. We cannot keep the law. But I remind you that the law has been described, the commandments of God have been described as holy, just, and good, and now they're described here as spiritual. They're spiritual. And I say to you, for the law to be called spiritual, it means that it has to be directed by God, the Holy Spirit, to hearts and lives of people for it to have the impact it was designed to do. And that's why in the Old Testament, so many people thought just keeping the law would work. That is, they could be saved by just keeping it, just keeping the law. Obey. If it said to go uh, walk 5,263 feet, they'd walk 5,263 5 feet, and they thought by the simple obedience of that. When you come to the New Testament, the Lord said, no, it's not quite like that. It's also the Spirit behind it, the Spirit behind the law. It's not just the, the physical aspects. It's, there's also a spiritual aspect. And that's where it began to work on the heart. And our Lord began to talk about giving them a new heart 
not just an understanding of the law, but a new heart. What was that to do? It, the heart was that they would understand it was a spiritual matter. It went deeper. It was the inner man that had to be addressed. And that's what Paul is getting to in the context here. So look at verse 14. Understand it well. He is saying the law's nature is spiritual. Our nature is just like Paul's nature, and it is carnal. Your nature is carnal. My nature is carnal. The law's nature is spiritual. So when you take something that's spiritual and you bump it up against something that's carnal or fleshly oriented, you're going to have conflict. And so everything that Paul tells us about in this context is to say to us that this is where the problem comes. Paul, like everybody else in this room, is still a creature of the flesh. And uh, the fact is that you know Christ, your struggle of sin comes at the crossing of God's law and uh, the old fleshly nature that has a different idea. I ran across two verses in, in, or one verse in this text. Look at verse number 7 or chapter 7 and verse number 5 again. There's a difference between verse number 5 of chapter 7 where Paul writes, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What he talks about being in the flesh there is being lost. You see, when he talks about when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The things you did when you were a lost sinner, the sinful things you did, bring about some fruit. And later on, as we talked about and have already shown when we preached through the early chapter of chapter 7, we pointed about just as surely when you come to know Christ as Savior, there is fruit that's brought forth there. But it's a good fruit. It doesn't bring forth fruit unto death. And it's not a kind of fruit that you're ashamed of. It's a kind of fruit that someday will bring you a reward. When you stand before the Lord, you'll be honored for what you did. Saved people did under that auspices of fruit bearing. But not when you were sinners. So what my point is, in verse number 5, there is a difference between being in the flesh and what verse number 14 is saying. The word carnal here literally means of the flesh. There's a difference here. Being in the flesh is to be lost and being under total, absolute control of the flesh. Being of the flesh simply means that you are of a human nature. And that's what Paul is saying and how he uses the word in this context. Every believer is aware in this room that he or she falls back into sin with too much what we call frequency. And that is, it is the fleshly, carnal nature through which the invitation to sin comes is all to surface or any for us. But Paul says something else. Notice in verse 14, Paul says he's not only carnal, but then he adds that he's a captive. You see, in verse number 14, he says he's sold under sin. That idea comes from the slave market. When you bought a slave and you purchased him with so much and you got to take him home, he became your servant. He, he did what you wanted him to do. Paul says that's sort of the idea here. Paul feels himself... In his fleshly orientation, Paul says, I feel that sin has gotten the upper hand to the point that I feel like I'm sold back under sin. I feel like I've been sold back under sin. I feel like sin has become my master all over again. Have you ever felt that way as a believer? If you were to tell the truth, you probably have. I'd go step further. There are probably be people in this room who'd say, you know, I got to the point where in time when I even question whether I was saved or not because I got into sin this way. And I even questioned myself whether I really enjoyed this sin or whether I loathed this sin. And we wonder, am I really saved? Can a, a saved person do this, act this way, behave this way? And Paul is saying here, yes, 
Yes, there's this thing of which sin can indeed get such an upper hand in your life in such a way that you would begin to wonder, can I really even be a saved person? And I believe there's some questions in Paul's mind at this point about that. Seeing himself as being put back under slavery of sin. It's important because you see, when he comes on down to verse 15, he explains it a little bit. He says, for that which I do, I allow. Allow not. And you need to understand the word allow. Uh, Greek translation elsewhere is the word approved. So what he's really saying, for that which I do not approve, or that which I approve not, for what I would, that I, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. What he's saying is, my world has been turned upside down. The things that I would hate normally and would never do, I'm prone to do them now. Now, what caused Paul to get through this struggle? I don't have a clue, and I don't know what his struggle was. Everybody has one that's different. But I do know in the context, and Paul is saying in this context, of verse number 15, he does that which he does not approve of. He does that which he does not approve of. This I do not approve. But did you do it? Yes, I did. What does that make you feel like? Well, it makes me feel like I'm back under sin, slavery again. But we know he's not, and Paul explains that, no, that's not true. That's not where I am. By the way, there's a passage in Galatians. It's a verse that you ought to remember. Paul wrote it to the church at Galatia, and he said this. Let me read it to you. It's in chapter 5, and it is verse number 17. It relates well to this particular passage of Scripture, and Paul wrote both of them. Galatians 5, 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary one the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that ye would is it the things that you would do if sin or the flesh gets the upper hand you'll catch yourself doing the things that you say this is wrong this is not right and you'll catch yourself obeying, complying with that which you already know is absolutely wrong. And that's what Paul says in verse number 15. That that which I approve of, I do not do. And that which I literally disapprove of, that's what I catch myself doing. Does that excuse sin? No, that's not what Paul's point is. In fact, Paul's point, and we'll see it more fully developed next week, when Paul comes to this thing to explain to us is to show us what's happening show you first of all to explain to you that no you're not losing your salvation you're not you're not getting into a point where you are as it were connected to sin again in such a way that you're going to lose your salvation he's a certainty of security is built into this and we can see that as we go further the second thing though he wants you to see is to not be blind to the reality of what it's all about you see if you think you'll, you'll have no problem with sin the likelihood is that you're going to be the first person to have trouble with sin if you're one of those people who we've heard so often the stories, and I'm sure you've heard them probably more than you want to, about snakes. People who love snakes. Oh, they love snakes. Have a snake in the refrigerator in the fridge, you know, and a snake out in the freezer, and, and, and then they get these snakes out, and some of them happen to be very, very large and whatever have you. I've told you the story often about uh, uh, Judy and I when we were in uh, Tennessee. We had a good friend who was a professor at the University of, of uh, Tennessee at, at Cookville. Actually, it's not the University of Tennessee. It's the it's, uh, Tennessee Polytechnical Institute what it was. Now it's a university, so it's moved up a grade. But anyway, he was teaching there, and his name was Don. And Don loved snakes. He taught biology. And Don always kept snakes in his freezer. 
I mean, he'd just go in there and bring out a snake, pop it out on the floor and warm carpet. Next thing you know, the bag would, you know, he'd get the bag open on it and this snake would warm up and he'd come slivering out of there. Don's not alone. There's a lot of people who do that. That's why when I go visit your house, I look in your freezer. First thing, you know, make sure there are no snakes in the house. But anyway, people do that. And there are folks tell the story again and again and again. They throw those snakes down on the floor. They begin to wiggle around. Somebody goes to pick one up and that crazy thing bites them. By the way, a copperhead has as much poison in it when it's four inches long as it does when it's uh, about 23 inches long. It has the same poison. It may be in reduced toxicity, but it has it. And it can make you sicker than a junkyard dog if it bites you. And so some people play around, toy around with them, but there have been people who toyed with them, played with them too long. Got so familiar with them, they thought, oh, this is no big thing. And then they did something they should never have done. One case that I guess just uh, sort of turns me inside out is the one where uh, a young lady stuck a copperhead in her mouth and closed her lips on it, and it bit her on the side of the inside jaw, and she died three days later. You just don't put snakes in your mouth. That's a no-no. But the problem with that is you become so familiar with it. And it's just such a thing to do. It just seems like the natural thing is just go a little, just a step further and a step further and a step further. But may I remind you, that's the way we're already programmed. That's what makes a drug addict a drug addict. The first shot won't be enough. You'll need a second. And the second's got to be a little bit bigger than the first. And the third's got to be bigger than the second. And every sin that would be called or every vice that would be called a sin has the same built-in process within it. Sin never satisfies. Remember, it kills. So if you get in sin, the thing that you'll notice is, is its gravitation toward more, 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 and more. So if it's sin, that's exactly what program scale and line you're on. And I say to you, that becomes the danger because that's what will kill you takes away not only the abundant life that you can live in success and progress and spiritual growth, but it also will rob you of the joy that's yours in Christ. You see, in these contexts of believers in this world, as creatures in it, our minds are fixed and, and I guess you'd say mixed with all kind of wants and desires and wishes. And the very fact that much of our life is made up of choices becomes a big deal. Several desires and wishes that are bouncing around in our heads all the time. And what Paul is going to get to and will encourage us to, to embrace will be the fact that to make sure that the desires of your life are the kind of desires that would bring much honor and glory to the Lord and not satisfy or classify or pacify the flesh. And that's what he'll come to. That one desire that we must groom and cultivate and encourage and condone and actually reproduce is that central desire or choice to please and obey God. When you do that, you don't have as much trouble as Paul will tell us later on concerning this issue, this struggle of the flesh. We set our minds on obedience to the Lord and keep our ship headed in that direction. And when you read God's Word, the mind of Christ becomes yours. That is, that you approve the things that God approves. You disapprove the things that God disapproves. The less of God's Word you get, the less you understand God, the more you'll get confused on the two. There'll be things you'll approve that God would condemn. And the people who are not in God's Word, not in God's church, not under God's preaching, those people are going to make bad choices. 
young people are going to marry the wrong person because they didn't hear somebody quote the passage in 2 Corinthians about be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So young people are going to go out and meet some guy or girl and they're going to marry them and those people are not saved and they're going to have a life that's ruined. Why? Why did that happen? Because they did not get in connection with the law of God, God's word that we give direction to life when they made right choices based on what God approves. If you don't approve what God approves and you try to approve what he disapproves, you are going to be the one that gets hurt. That's like, uh, that's like taking a, a slingshot and trying to shoot down a, a, an Apache jet helicopter. That's exactly the, the correlation between that. You, you will have no hope against God. I remember a, a story. I believe it was Dr. Bill Sr. who told. He went into a barber shop one time to get a haircut. And when he went in, the, the barber was showing somebody, I believe another preacher. He was showing a, a, a person this uh, um, magazine, which was absolutely off limits and wrong and all that. Well, the point made is that uh, Dr. Bill saw what he was looking at. And then he turned to Dr. Bill and invited him to look at it. As I recall the story, and Dr. Bill, you know, said thank you, but no thank you. In fact, went back over, got on his sport coat, put on his trench coat, and was going to leave the barbershop. And the guy came around the barbershop and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? Wait, I won't cut your hair. And he said, no. He said, I do not want a fool cutting my hair that knows he's a fool before he starts. You thought I was me. And this man clenched his fist and he said, Who do you think you are calling me a fool? Or, or nobody calls me a fool and gets away from it. Dr. Bill said, I didn't. God did. And Dr. Bill began to quote verses of Scripture and explain the reality of who a fool is. And before he finished and with his quoting of the verses and so forth, this man saw himself as God saw him as a fool who was thinking that sin can be a pleasurable, enjoyable thing when it's out of bounds. I say to you, my friend, there's an importance of what Paul is saying here, and it's built on the ideal of choices, making good choices. One thing that's interesting, yesterday in, in our house and park, we were, uh, I'd gotten finished with prayer here at the church. I went back to our house, our residence, and I raised the garage door, and as I did, I went inside. I came back out. As I came back out, by that time, probably 10 o'clock, there was a hummingbird that had gotten caught inside the garage, a yellow hummingbird, beautiful creature. Long beak, flying like crazy. And uh, this hummingbird, uh, you know, I thought, simple. This bird will just come down, fly out to his 16-foot door or whatever this thing is, and he'll be home free. Five o'clock yesterday afternoon, that bird was still flying in my garage. From 10 in the morning until 5 in the evening, that hummingbird, and as you know, hummingbirds, they light very seldom except to feed, and you know, then they're off. And this hummingbird, I mean, he was in flight almost constantly. And as you know, a hummingbird, a hummingbird, I guess, if you look at them, they look like to me, they can fly forward, backward, up and down. They can fly in any direction they want to at any moment. This little bird flies up against the ceiling, and boy, he's just, he's just fluttering his wings against the ceiling. And, and I said to my wife, I said, I hate to see this bird die in the garage, but that's exactly what this hummingbird is going to do. Judy said, why don't you get a soft broom and see if you can't, you know, put him up against the ceiling, catch him, put him out of here. Easy said, tough to do. You ever kind of catch a hummingbird? I get up on this ladder, and where do you think he'd go? Over in that corner. I'd get the ladder and go over in that corner, and he'd come over to this corner. And even though I hedged him in and I had two brooms going, to, you know, to sort of corral him and I, no way. This guy wasn't going to be corralled. So all day long, the hummingbird was flying and cruising and going back and forth, trying to fly. And all he had to do was drop down probably 24 inches and fly straight out the door. 
flying straight out. I mean, he, he, it was just the simplest of solutions. In fact, on the front side of the house, there's more open than there is closed. But he worked all day long, making a choice to stay within six inches of the ceiling. Flying at top speed. I mean, this guy was flying from one side of the room to the other and flapping against the ceiling and peck on the ceiling and seeing, seeing if it open. I mean, this guy was going absolutely crazy. As the day wore on, I noticed something. His flight was lowering. Whereas he'd been six inches above, now he was down about 24 inches. Now he was down where he was just skimming the top of the, of the garage door when it came up. And, but still he was flying and trying and working and laboring. We went inside and about 5.15 or so, I came back out, 5.30 maybe. He was gone. I've looked all over my garage. I thought he just meant run out of gas. You know, he's parked over here somewhere and I'll just go over and find a dead bird. But he did. he's nowhere in my garage. He got out. And I'm convinced of this. You know how he got out? He quit trying. And he came down to where he just absolutely said, man, I've been had. On this Saturday, I have flown into this stupid guy's garage. And I am going to die in this garage. I might as well give up right here and now and forget to... And somehow, some way, this guy lowered himself. And I'm confident because the side door was shut, went out the front door where he came in. I thought so much about people who try so hard to be good people so they can go to heaven. And they fly and they try. And it's only when they come to the end of themselves that they find the Lord is standing there with the door open and say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Simple question, but an important one. This morning, do you know the rest that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ in a right relationship with Him? Do you know for sure if you died graveyard dead sitting right here in the New Life Baptist Church on this Sunday morning, August the 22nd, 2004, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven based on a Bible reason? And secondly, let me ask you this question. Are you one of those people that are struggling with sin and dealing with it day in and day out in your life and you'd about come to a point where you wonder whether you was even saved or not? Let me tell you this morning, this passage of Scripture does not condone sin in a believer's life, not by any stretch of anybody's imagination. But what it does say is this. Sin is still a part of the struggle that goes on in the life of a believer. And the more you come to know the Lord and live in His Word and grow and progress in a spiritual maturity, the more it's going to become a struggle to you. So this morning, if you think it's gotten the upper hand on you, let me encourage you, my fellow pilgrim, to take heart. God is still on the throne. The Holy Spirit still indwells His people. And victory is still ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come closer to the conclusion of the chapter, Paul will make that expressly clear. So I hope you'll stay with us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And thank you that they know us, know who we are, what we are, and what we're all about. And thank you that they were not written to an abstract set of circumstances, but they were written to people just like us. And they address the issues of our life, not the issues of somebody on some other planet. They address us, where we are, what we do, and how we react. I pray this morning that you'll use the message to give comfort and encouragement to some people who may be struggling with sin and who may have thought they lost their salvation because the struggle seems so great, so titanic. I pray this morning that you might work in their hearts to assure them that it's not that we are condoning sin by any stretch of the imagination. 
It is only to say that sin is a part of who we are and what we're about because we're in the flesh. And because we are carnal, because we are in the flesh or of the flesh in the sense that we're still human, we're still going to drive and deal and have to address this issue. So I pray this morning that you'll help us to be on guard, to be alert, to abstain from every appearance of evil for sure, to walk circumspectly above reproach, walk in the spirit that we not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Do all the things that we should do that are directed in your word for us to obey and to model. Then to look to you for the victory. <clears throat> the victory is not in ourselves. We're not able or capable to deal with sin in our own life. But Christ dealt with it on the cross for us to take away the sin of the world. And salvation is in him. But sanctification is in him also. Our victory is in Christ living his life through us. Not us trying harder. Not us like the hummingbird spending his whole day trying to go through a door that's been open all along. Father, I pray that you'll work in our hearts on this great truth and drive it deep into each of us. And may each of us be more like you because of having heard it. For that person, man, woman, boy, or girl who's never believed on Christ and trusted him as Savior. As we sing the invitation song, just as I am, may they come to know Christ even here this morning. And may the choices they make from here on out be those that will be guided and directed by their reading, studying, memorizing your word. So bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. We trust you with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, and turn in your hymn book, if you need one, to page 282, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about your relationship with Christ, we invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you how you can be saved and know it. And if you've been struggling with some other matters and you need to do business with the Lord this morning, the front pews are open for your coming. So I trust you'll take to heart that which you've heard in Sunday school and the worship service and now act upon it in obedience to it. Hope you will. 282 verse 1. Let's sing together, please. Together. Just as I am without one. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, and I hope you'll be back for the evening service. We begin at 6 o'clock, choir practice at 5, 5.30 men's prayer, and then here in the auditorium for 6 o'clock with Brother John Conrad. So hope you can come and join us for that hour. We look forward to it. May the Lord bless you as we go. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you again for the scriptures and for the privilege we have of holding them, reading them, studying them. And we thank you for the impact they have on our lives and helping us to deal with sin. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity we've had this morning to sit in Sunday school and again here in the worship service. And even as we look forward to the evening service, we pray that you'll prepare our hearts for that which we'll hear. And I pray as we go from here that you'll both give safety, protection, security to your people. And also pray that you'll bring to mind and remembrance those things that we've heard. And pray that they'll become part and parcel of our lives. And that you'll use them to continually direct our lives, our steps, our choices, our decisions. Pray, Father, you'll be honored and glorified by all that we do and say. 
Lead us as we leave this place now. Bless your people. Bring them back for the evening service. And again, bless Brother Conrad as he shares with us the burdens, the projects that are before them. Pray that you'll challenge our hearts with that same con. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.